0: Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now. And it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up and let's get started. As Japan Fashion Week is almost upon us, it felt fitting to finally post my Fashion Your Seatbelt interview with Nick Wooster. Nick and I met up at Japan Fashion Week back in October of last year, long before anyone had ever heard the words COVID or Coronavirus. Originally, I had planned on posting this podcast in March, when the last Japan Fashion Week was scheduled to start, but then the world shut down and the Fashion Week didn't take place in the real world. But what do Japan Fashion Week and Nick Wooster have in common? Well, Nick, who is consistently one of the best dressed men I have ever seen, is a world-class fashion consultant and he's been coming to Japan for years on buying trips and basically he has fallen in love with the country and today he even sits on the jury of the prestigious Tokyo Fashion Award in the past Nick has worked as a buyer at Bergdorf Goodman he was the director of retail merchandising at Calvin Klein the design director of the Polo Ralph Lauren brand and later he also held the role of the men's fashion director at Neiman Marcus over the years there have been a few bumps in the road of his career path which he will talk about a bit in this podcast but today Nick Nick is living his best life as a fashion consultant working with and advising a number of different fashion brands around the world. Nick feels that it's his love of being a fashion consumer that is part of the reason why he has continuously been able to be successful in the fashion sphere. His ability to maintain a user's point of view makes it possible for him to give his clients clear-eyed opinions and criticism with the confidence of a true blue luxury consumer. So sit back and enjoy Nick talking about what he loves most, fashion. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time, really appreciate it.
1: Of course, thank you for having me.
0: I know you're um, running around here at um, Tokyo Fashion Week, but I, before we go into what you're doing here, I'd like to just kind of go back to the beginning, because we were talking earlier about how the fashion industry is, you can succeed in the fashion industry on your merits, and I'm wondering how you became a success in the fashion industry, how did it all begin?
1: You know, the, the thing that I can say about my experience in working in fashion is that I've been doing it since I'm 16 years old. Mm. I mean, and I really have my mom to credit for that because you know when I announced that I wanted a cashmere sweater when I was in junior high, mm. she said I'd be happy to buy you a sweater. It's just not going to be cashmere. If you want a cashmere sweater, go work for it. So I thought, well, why not go to the source? So this, the nicest store in the home in my hometown in Salina, Kansas, I marched myself up there when I was a sophomore in high school and said, "Hey, do you need some help after school or on Saturday?" And they said. Yes. And so I started working on nights or evenings, afternoons and weekends and summer vacations and Christmas vacations. And then by the time I was sort of a senior, they were like taking me on buying trips to Kansas City and Dallas and then New York and having me do the windows and displays. And so I just understood retail from a very early age. And also that was the only, it never occurred to me about design or any of the other kind of aspects of the business. It was like, I wanted to be a buyer because I worked in a store and I liked stores, but I understand that's not exactly typical, although I think that if you, I say this to people all the time, if you want to work in fashion, then work in fashion. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I know a lot of people think that they want to be creative directors and they want all these kinds of things and that's great, but at some point you have to start somewhere. And usually, many for many people, that can be the selling floor of a of a retail store. Nobody wants to be a salesperson in a retail store, except career salespeople who can actually make a lot of money. But what I mean by that is, like, it's like a lot of waiters don't want to really be waiters. They're
0: frustrated actors or whatever. You know <laughs> and so
1: and I think that a lot of people who work in in retail, or at least fashion retail, don't really want to be salespeople, they would rather be the buyer or the manager or, you know, creative director or what fashion director or whatever they think that is. And it's good to have an aspiration. It's good to have dreams. But at the end of the day, you really, it's like you really can learn a lot about a lot of things, human behavior, brands, brand performance, service relationships, if you actually just do the job. Mm -hmm. And so... What's interesting is I was a salesperson in 1976, you know, basically until, I don't know, I graduated from college and then I moved to New York and worked in advertising, different story, Mm. because I sort of felt like I wanted to be Darren Stevens or something working in an advertising agency because I'd say journalism. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did for a period of time until I realized like, oh, I just want to be a buyer again. So.
0: But then, so how did you pivot back in? I mean, that's very okay, I mean, so, typical uh, typical in the U.S. to change careers, you know, but not everywhere in the world. Kind of You get pigeonholed, and then in fashion, you get to a certain age, you can't really start over not...
1: Because well, this sales thing, standing on the floor, comes up two more times. So, okay. in 1986... After being fired from New York Magazine, selling advertising space, it was a long oh. story, and I was not suited, well suited for that. They also diagnosed my drug problem, but I said I want to be a buyer, and so this woman introduced me to. She said, "Okay, go meet my friend Miss Naditz, who was a buyer at Sixth Avenue." Mm-hmm. So I met Miss Naditz, and everybody was called Mister, S- Mister in Saxon and those And I said, "You know, I want to be a buyer," and she's like okay. So, you know, there's two ways that you can do that. One is to be in the training program. This was in like March of 1986. One is to be in the training program. We usually recruit from the Ivy leagues and that's in September. You know, you would start in September. I was looking for a job now. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can start working on the floor as an, as like an assistant department manager and work your way up that way. So Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, I can do that. So that's what I did. So in 1986, I was an assistant department manager. And in those days, men's, what was called men's sport furnishings, which were sweaters, sports shirts, and knit shirts, like polo shirts, were on the main floor. It's now a Louis Vuitton boutique. Um, (laughs) And, you know, and so I did that. And what's interesting about that is the people who were in Saks Fifth Avenue in 1986, I mean, the names may or may not resonate with people now, but the president, Bert Tansky, went on to become the CEO of Nemo Marcus Group. The men's GMM was a man named Roger Farrah, who was the CEO of Ralph Lauren for a long time and really brought it to where it was. He mm-hmm. left maybe three years ago. And then he now he thinks he's with CEO of Tory Birch. Uh-huh. Wayne Meichner was a buyer who became president of retail for Ralph Lauren for many years. There was Joe Gromack, who was the store manager, who was the CEO of, of Brooks Brothers at one point. Linda Beauchamp was the fashion director who became the president of Donna Karen menswear from the very beginning for mm-hmm. 10 or 15 years. So a lot of very important industry people were at Saks Fifth Avenue at that time and I was 26 years old. And, and I really believe that I learned mm through osmosis, through being there, so many things. I mean, I didn't know necessarily all these people though. I mean, I think that I knew all these people, I knew who these people were and I think that they knew who I was, but it wasn't like I intimately worked with them. Mm -hmm. But being around them is what I think helps form the experience and that's why I just think it's super important to, to work.
0: But okay, so then you liked the cashmere sweater. you clearly weren't advertising or selling advertising wasn't your thing. You came back to buying. So talk to me a little bit about what it was about that, that you love so much. What, what made you keep coming back? Well,
1: the, the thing about being a buyer in the 80s and, and early 90s especially was it was before data. Mm-hmm. So we had to rely on knowledge and intuition. And so intuition, like luck, I think is something that you can sort of harness you can't necessarily control it but you know you can be prepared for it by doing your homework let's say or being around or having experience I mean that's where maybe today some of those things aren't valued in the same way but you know there was something and I remember when you know back in those days thinking how did these people know about what happened three seasons ago, five seasons ago, 10 years ago. Now I know that, you know, it's like with the experience of 30 years now, you know, and uh, young people could roll their eyes. Anyone could roll their eyes and go, yeah, but that's not today. Okay. True. It is not today. And yes, everything is rapidly changing, but (laughs) there still are some things that are true. Yeah. I mean, constantly true, you know? And so I do think that there's the need for both today Mm -hmm. you know it's like I tell people in order to you know be successful you know it's like you have to fire on all cylinders all the time 100% -hmm. or you're going to fail Mm -hmm. in the old days maybe two out of three three out of five two out of seven Mm -hmm. could get you somewhere pretty much if you're not firing on four out of five or you know five out of five you don't even have a prayer you know by that I mean things like operations finance I mean, of course, design merchandising, meaning like the right product, but the right pricing, the right distribution. I mean, all of these things will kill you if you don't, or if you don't have a website that gives the right information. I'm not even talking about an e-commerce platform and that's a whole other bundle of Ball of wax, but you know, just the idea that if you can't give people the information that they need, they will move on. Yeah.
0: and Faster and faster as well. To, right. to maintain somebody today is just almost impossible. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you've seen the changing landscape. What do you think is the. Everything is speeded up, sped up, of course, but is it the e-commerce is it the digital space is it social media what do you think has really transformed this like, the job of the buyer because coming from the fashion critic side you know it's absolutely transformed what a fashion critic is today so well right.
1: oh, i mean again the answer is all of it mm. all of the above there is no i mean i'm sure that there are some things that factored more heavily than others and it probably depends on the organization or the but you know but at the end of the day it all contributed so you know where we are today is that it's easier than ever to acquire things and yet it's harder than ever for the people who are trying to sell it to satisfy them Mm -hmm. and by that I mean you know the right place the right time I mean this is something department stores have been dealing with for you know the past 10 or 11 years and that is that their stock online doesn't necessarily reflect the stock on store so Mm -hmm. if someone is in a store and sees something sometimes Mm -hmm. like for example there may there may be a brand like Celine that they can buy in a store but they cannot have it online Mm -hmm. so their online doesn't Mirror exactly what's in the store, mm-hmm. or they buy two different stocks. So there's a kind of department who buys the online, mm-hmm. and then there's a department who buys the store. Mm-hmm. And those inventories are two separate inventories. So it's like if there's a size six something in Birdorf's on the second floor, it may or may not be in the warehouse because it's two different inventories.
0: I mean, again, this is completely outside my wheelhouse, but I would think that you would want all of that to be completely streamlined and together. You wouldn't want to have a separate buy for online as opposed to something that's in the store.
1: So, you know, Neiman's and Bird were an example of a retailer that had these two separate inventories, and now they they have, I believe, successfully been able to get that. But that was like last year, mm-hmm. or two years ago. Let's say tied together... I, I, I can't speak for them I don't mm-hmm. know but but you know but it's an example of how radically things have changed and and yet I still know that that kind of thing can exist I mean it can also be that if you order something online if you don't have the right kind of system and you, it takes your order so if you're like a really small store let's say you don't have a very sophisticated online platform you know a customer could go in order something they take the money. It says, okay, it'll be shipped on this day. Three days later, you find out, oh, sorry, we don't have it. Okay, yes, mistakes can happen. Things can happen. But that's the you kind can... of thing that if you do that once with someone, they're never coming back. Yeah,
0: there isn't a second chance ever. <laughs> I mean, people don't, you make that one mistake one time and you just don't go back to that. You, you can, you'll go somewhere else for sure. And, I mean, and that's
1: what I really mean by like if you're a small. So in the old days, if you were a person and you wanted to open a store, you could do that. Mm-hmm find a great location, mm-hmm. maybe spend a little bit of money doing something, finding the brands, putting them in the store. That was pretty much all you needed to do 30 years ago. Today, it's all that stuff. So you not only have to have the perfect store, you have to have the right location. Probably you're paying astronomical rent that you're barely going to make. That's if everything sells well. And then you have to equally have it online. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have it online, you're going to piss people off because they're not going to be able to find it. They're not... because. You know, today we just have no idea, we still don't have any idea really how and why people buy things. Do they buy them because they see it first or do they buy it because they see it online and they happen to want to pick it up? Mm -hmm. I know both things are true. I'm sure that for some people or some some locations, some cities, maybe it's more one than the other, yet there's no real way to measure that. So you have to be able to do both equally well if you want to succeed.
0: We've talked, we circled around a little bit about, you know, how you were learning about osmosis from all of these great minds who were working at the store at the same time as you, but you didn't really talk about what it was about what you did that you loved, why you came back to it. I mean, uh, over and over again, what was it about buying that really makes you tick?
1: Well, it's so funny because I, as I was a buyer in the nineties, first I was a buyer at Barney's New York, then at bird I used to sit in runway shows and think, oh I can do that meaning design the clothes Uh. and so I sort of made a detour and did that after being a buyer I was I worked in design at Ralph Lauren Mm -hmm. and then some other some other brands but um you know and and no I'm not a designer designer like trained designers but making product is equally as interesting to me I mean that's what I do now is I get to do both I get to work with retailers and I get to work in design factories and and studios and actually create a product that's also again i mean i i feel like i've earned that because Mm -hmm. i've been doing this for so long you know many people can do that too and maybe they're not so interested in one thing or the other so there's no you know i mean that's the great thing
0: but it isn't that the, that isn't that the way also today that it, which wasn't the case when you first started out there's this hybrid mentality where you can do multiple things you can be multiple things wherein, where we're back in the day when we both started you had to be one thing and nothing else almost to to your own detriment I mean maybe... I had a
1: headhunter tell me in 2001 so going back to the sales thing because so in 2001 after having worked with the designer his name was John Barlett, for five years and we sort of had like a big thing and then it sort of contracted a bit we were sort of not the bus- his business he wanted to, you know it was like after five years it was time for us to sort of separate mm-hmm. so we did and I couldn't find the next right job and so 2001 9/11 anyway a series of events happened I ended up having to move to Los Angeles and found myself without work again mm-hmm. <laughs> I had moved for a job that didn't last very long and then I you know, ended up being in a relationship which was also a new idea after 10 years so it was like living in LA which I wanted to do I'm unemployed again what the fuck am I gonna do and um someone suggested you know why don't you work at Barney's in Beverly Hills and I was like I'm not gonna do that like yeah been I was there, a buyer I was yeah. a buyer of Barney's yeah been there but, I, that. Mm-hmm. but I did and so in t- from 2000 in 2004 I for seven months, eight months, I was on the floor in women's designers selling dresses on the second floor. And I was a terrible salesperson. <laughs> um, part of it was like, I felt ashamed, but part of it is like, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Like it's really hard work. There's obviously, there's competition amongst the tenured people that had been there. And you know, at the end of the day, I knew that I wasn't gonna be doing this forever. Or I hoped that mm-hmm. I wasn't gonna be doing this forever. And I wasn't aggressive enough that, I mean, it's like, listen, this is your, you've been doing this for your career. I'm not going to fight with you about that. Like, I'll let you have it. Probably I could have not been so nice about that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's like, but it was fascinating to me. And it really is like getting an MBA when you do that. I was in my 40s. Mm -hmm. So when I was 44 years old, when I was doing that. You, you, you know. I saw how brands delivered. I saw what you know how brands represented themselves, meaning the people that they would bring in to do trainings and clinics, and mm-hmm. and the ones that did and the ones that didn't. Mm-hmm. And you saw what it. I saw from the inside what it took to be successful at the store level, and also how hard managers and salespeople work mm-hmm. because it is hard work. And this is again bef- really before any social media, and bef- certainly. I mean, online existed, but it wasn't the behemoth it is now, that yeah. It is today, but you, but you also saw how when something was hot and when you know how elusive it was to like, you know, I mean, I will never forget like a Mark Jacobs sweater that, like, literally, or you know, Prada shoes or whatever it was that just people ha- women had to have, mm-hmm. and how. They were calling around the country to get that kind of stuff, and how I mean, it happened. I mean, business was good in those days, mm-hmm. and, but you know, but it's like it just—it's—it's it's hard work. Like, and that's the thing that I think so many people—the—the one—the the one thing that's really unfortunate about social media is that it—it it glosses over the fact that you don't see the hard work that goes on behind it. Very like, true. you know, uh, okay, you know, I have this iPhone, which has the most amazing camera on it, mm-hmm. and it does take fantastic pictures. Okay, that might make me, who is not a photographer, take better pictures. That does not make me a photographer. Yeah. And so for every you know, good picture that a non-photographer can take, makes it appear that they can do the job of a real photographer. When you mm-hmm. look at the pages of, of magazines, like real magazines, who do you know what it takes to make a beautiful image, Unfortunately, you know, we, it's all been devalued and sometimes suits look at things and think, well, you know, do we really need to spend that amount of money or time to make that happen? Mm-hmm. And I guess we're still trying to sort that out because there are no easy answers there. You know, it's 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 un, it's unfortunate that it, that the things that suffer are the are the talents who mm-hmm. you know the talented people who are behind the scenes just trying to do work to mm-hmm. make that kind of thing happen. And
0: but I mean, social media for you has also was a quite a, a good thing. I mean, it, it kind of not that it. It got you well known to a larger audience, didn't it? I mean, the I'm sitting
1: here because of it, you know. So I'm so not. Can you
0: talk to me a little bit about how that happened to you? Because I mean, it's it is um, it's a young, you know, twenty year old woman's game, pretty much. But here you are, a man in your fifties, almost sixty, a man in your fifties, you know, you know, who who is like a street style, you know, favorite. And can you talk a little bit about the evolution of your career and how you were seen no, by absolutely. the fashion world?
1: So you know. Um... Okay, so all of this social media stuff that's been happening, you know, happened for me. So after standing on the floor, of Barney's, and then having two other jobs in LA that were sort of what whatever they were, I mean, I had I I had, I had a very nice life in LA, and mm-hmm. I was perfectly content in my mid to late forties that like this was going to be my life because I assumed. Okay, fashion's the young person's game. I've already had this career. Exactly. Like my time is, so I was kind of- Making your peace with it, yeah. To that's where it was. And in the summer, in the fall of 2009, I read in Women's Wear Daily that the men's fashion director job of Neema Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman was available.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so I, you know, put some feelers out and was told who to contact and I did. And in January of 2010, was hired. from L.A., basically not having sort of been in that life for eight years to be the men's fashion director. So my first day of work was flying, or I mean, my I flew from L.A. to Milan, and on my first day of work, which was the Saturday of men's shows mm-hmm. after Pitti Uomo, mm-hmm. Scott Schumann and Tommy Tan both took my picture. I mean, I've always known that I can dress myself, and so that's been, again, I, I knew about the sartorialist and I knew about Tommy but I didn't have any idea that although I I mean I was aware of how I dressed, and I was aware that I had a style it never occurred to me that I would actually get my picture taken (laughs) like I just was like you know
0: living your life that's you know, you like. just what i do like yeah. that's just i mean
1: i i need to get dressed and i i always thought that a requirement for working in the fashion business was that you had to be stylish but okay <laughs> <laughs> and i never less and <laughs> less these days
0: i mean but go ahead yeah so you know
1: so i thought i was just doing my job or doing what you're supposed to do mm-hmm. it never occurred to me that it was somehow remarkable or or different so that event and then some subsequent bloggers who wrote about me and, and c- continued to take pictures as I became content on Tumblr and blogs mm-hmm. I you know was what's Tumblr? Like I didn't <laughs> know what it was. And then and then that job ended because of you know uh, something that I said and um, <laughs>
0: Do you regret saying something that you said
1: in hindsight? Absolutely not, because I didn't need to be in that job longer than I was. You know, so I I thought my life was over, and that I was really like I had really like there would be nothing for me. The reality was was different from two thousand one. The next day, so what happened was I said something on. At GQ, that I, you know, that I thought was off the record, but I don't blame the journalist. I did not, you know, I, I did not. So I, anyway, my mistake, not theirs. So I was fired because I called myself an old fucking midget queen, you know. <laughs> and so because I was being self deprecating, which I thought was funny, and yeah. obviously they did too, because they decided they elected to. It's a, it. it's a great little,
0: yeah, Marcel that for and sure. And
1: so, but you know, at any rate. The, there were three opportunities, two of which I ended up doing the next day or, you know, I mean, that I was But you fine. think people
0: came knocking on your door because of the social yes, media
1: stuff? Yes, yes. Because you become because a brand. Be, right. So again, I, I didn't do anything except I knew that I was content and I'm using air quotes. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to be content, but I knew that I was somehow. And so that one of those opportunities was to work with Guilt and Park & Bond, which were in 2011, the it was one of the hottest companies to work for at that time. And they were hiring people like crazy. And I worked with all these young kids and they told me about Instagram in like its third or fourth month. Mm -hmm. And so I joined and then all of a sudden, like I got an audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like, how did that happen? Like, again, I'm not a photographer. I'm not... You know, so I'm super grateful to Instagram and to social media for the career that I've had through mm-hmm. my fifties and going into my sixties. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Well, and it's led to you here. I mean, and to a certain extent, because you've been coming here since two thousand and fourteen here in Japan, and and you're also on a, a jury here, and you're supporting younger designers here. I mean, is that? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah.
1: So so. Again, I, I mean, you'd have to ask them, but I, I think that um, because of the profile that I have, or because of the audience that I have, they were able to you know, sort of justify the expense of bringing me over amongst other people. But I've been lucky enough to sort of stay. And I get the, and then, but really, so, okay, so yes, we attend shows, we, but the real work is to mentor people in the uh, Tokyo Fashion Award, which is a kind of, incubator for for promoting each year so it's two two seasons they promote six brands mm-hmm. by exposing them to the west through um, a booth at Womo. this is during the men's markets in january, in january. And, and june, june. Mm-hmm. it also then paris co- corresponds with the women's pre-collection markets in january and june so a showroom that gives them, you know, exposure gives these domestic brands exposure to a wider audience mm-hmm. in Europe, and there have been some real success stories: Vasetazem, Doublet, Bedford, um, J.W. Bedford, Tack, Juan, many others. Right now, Children of the, of the Discordans, but the point is, is that it's a it's an amazing program that gives a great runway mm-hmm. and opportunity for. The country, Japan, to sort of show itself to a, you know to a wider audience, mm-hmm. and it's it's amazing to be part of that.
0: Do you think um, there's always this debate about you know there's the there's the top four capitals of fashion, and you know what's the fifth one? I mean, would you say that Tokyo has proven itself to be the number five? Or mm-hmm. I mean, you know,
1: I I don't know. I mean, probably there are several good other contenders. If mm-hmm. but if, you know, my thing is. I don't know that we need more fashion weeks. I just think that we need better ones, mm-hmm. like meaning better programming, more critical mass, maybe more, you know, uh, timely or diversified programming. Maybe like you, like we were talking about, maybe um, not just runway shows or presentations, but maybe there's an opportunity for discussions or as you said, master classes or some other expression mm-hmm. not just the traditional format of a runway show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean I I think Seoul has, you know, is is being spoken about Shanghai certainly, mm-hmm. Africa. I mean, I think that there's any number of things po- possibilities and you know, one of the things that's actually interesting too, which I don't know how do you manage this, but you know, the, and I know that it's like really a bad thing for a lot of businesses to sort of manage getting getting to But this idea that like in the women's uh, cruise market, how they do these kind of shows in various venues around the world, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there's an opportunity for different places to sort of have their moment. So it's like the Olympics, like every, you know, however many seasons it comes back to. So it's like there could be a rotation of different places and. It could be Japan for a while, mm-hmm. Seoul for a while, or a season, and then, you know, and then mm-hmm. they'll be up again in whatever the next opportunity Every is. After four years, yeah. <laughs> you know, and maybe they should do that with New York and some other places, too. I mean, it's... It, because here's the thing. All bets are off. Like, you know, just because things have been done the way that they've been done doesn't necessarily mean that's the reason, the right reason
0: to be to doing keep it. doing it. And with all the dark consumer brands and, and all these other avenues for brands to get the word out, then, yeah... That's an absolutely a valid point. Um, okay, let me ask you the five generic fashion questions that I ask all of my my interviewees. What is your, or maybe not, your favorite piece of clothing that you own? The thing that you love most, that you cherish the most?
1: I absolutely don't have one. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: I, I have so many clothes and so many things. I mean, I, I don't have one.
0: Okay. Do you keep everything or do you rotate stuff out? I mean, do you have like closets upon closets?
1: I have closets upon closets. I have a master bedroom that's a closet and I have stuff in storage. You know, I, yeah, I, I keep too much. I buy too much. I give away a lot. I sell off a lot through either, you know, Grailed or uh, Tokyo seven or, and then, you know, a lot of people in my life benefit
0: from, <laughs> Your ha- little habit there. <laughs> From my largesse. No, because, because I think it's important to give stuff away. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. What is the one item of clothing or accessory that a man or a woman should really, like, even somebody who doesn't have a lot of means, they should really invest in? Like, there's that one piece that you'd want to Well, go I, say designer. This, I
1: mean, You know, I say this for, for men, you know, it's like buy the best you can afford mm-hmm. always. And it is, de- I do not practice this. Well, I guess I do because I just buy a lot, but I mean, I, but I, you know, I, I, things like a great pair of shoes, like a, you know, a perfect pair of wingtips or, you know, a perfect pea coat if you live in a cold climate or a navy blazer if you need to wear a jacket, you know, good white shirts, which don't have to be expensive white shirts. Brooks Brothers makes beautiful white shirts. But the point is, is that like you should have good things. I would say this too, like one beautiful alligator belt with a silver plaque buckle like something that's just that you could wear with jeans you could wear with Mm -hmm. something dressy and it can work in equal context Mm -hmm. there's a lot of menswear is really easy in that way to sort of break it down of like you know a great camel hair coat or a black or navy cashmere top coat like those kinds of things those kinds of real foundation pieces are the kinds of things that you should spend your money on
0: Okay. I am um, I know I have a couple, three more to ask you, but I just want to go off on a tangent here real quick and ask you about, because we didn't talk about this, was the evolution of the menswear now with street and activewear becoming, kind of overtaking the, anything that's tailored, and, and then now the people are ta- talking about how there's tailoring being pulled into streetwear. I'm wondering how you're feeling about the current state of men's fashion
1: Well, I mean, my feet are happy that I wear sneakers a lot. Oh, Um, me too. But, you know, but at the end of the day, I think that the the business, and I really collectively blame everyone, that we've, again, shot ourselves in the foot that, um, you know, you took things like suits and replaced them with hoodies. You've taken things like Goodyear welted shoes and replaced them with sneakers. And you've taken cashmere or camel hair, coats and replace them with puffer jackets so all each and all of those things are fine i love a puffer jacket i love sneakers and i love hoodies however i don't want to die out of candy like mm-hmm. you know there are some times i mean i think a sense having a sense of occasion is an important thing for a a, a person i'd say man but a you know certainly mm-hmm. women too To understand, so it's good that maybe there will be a bit of a reckoning, somewhat, let's say a style reckoning, that it's not always appropriate to wear sneakers, it's not always appropriate to wear hoodies, it's not always appropriate to wear ripped jeans at the knee. Mm -hmm. There's a time and a place for everything, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But when you see it all the time, constantly, 24-7, it does make you kind of wonder, what the state of Western civilization and So, you know, I know it's not going to happen overnight, and I don't believe that suits are ever going to overtake sweatshirts as, you know, a category. Mm-hmm. But it will be nice to see...
0: The pendulum swing back yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, with that in mind, who is your favorite designer, living or dead?
1: I, I have to say Ray Kubo of Come to Your Song. Why? Is, because... For someone to be as encyclopedic as she is, and as the company is, to be able to do what they do. From there now, the most important, I would argue, the most important department store retailer in the world with Dover Street Market. Comme des Garcons continues to innovate and to do amazing things, and I buy a lot of it. Like, I'm wearing it, you know, it's <laughs> like, I, I just... It's always good. And even when it's not like my cup of tea, because there are some collections that are harder than others to maybe find a lot to buy, it doesn't matter. There's just so, so much there. Even on a
0: bad day, they're better than most everybody else out there.
1: For me, it's she's the best one.
0: Mm, Okay. Is there a fashion trend that you will never follow?
1: Following trends.
0: (laughs) Good answer. Um, I mean, you know,
1: here's the thing. I hated that question as a fashion director because... And I hate that word because it, it implies throwaway. It mm-hmm. implies something is al- already going to be over as soon as you utter it. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate that. I, I hate, obviously, there are currents, there are things happening in the world that you understand are, you know, wow, like that's, a, and I, I use the word expression like that's out there. It's mm-hmm. in the ether. It's like you can feel something and, and that's v- valid and real, but, you know, but the, the idea of following trends for the sake of following trends or to be concerned about them mm-hmm. is, I think, misguided. Like, why waste your energy on that? There's nothing wrong with wanting something that other people want. But to try to chase it and feel like it's a, a form of validation is, I just think... I I, I, I think we see... we that There's less and less of a need for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Okay, last question. What do you love most about fashion?
1: You know, it's... So, of all of the basic needs home like so you could say decorating food so you could say having a restaurant so shelter food and then clothing I mean the clothing for me is you know it's one of the three essential needs I'm interested in certainly decorating as well as it I mean I'm not saying I'm going to do that but I but I do love beautiful interiors and architecture but you know i'm not a food person at all but i do enjoy a good meal as much as everyone it, we, so it, we need it like we need air mm-hmm. you know we have to wear something and i've always said it doesn't take any more effort to think about or to put on something nice as it does to put on something not nice mm-hmm. so with a little bit of knowledge meaning education like learning about things with a little bit of skill taste and you know and and some of that can be learned and some of that's innate I mean mm-hmm. some people are musical some people are athletic some people have a, an ear for foreign languages I have a, the ability to dress myself <laughs> um,
0: that's your superpower
1: right well but you know but at the but by the same token so does everyone and even if you you know think that you don't have possess that skill if you just follow a few set of like basic rules like dressing one color or you know, find clothes that suit your body type, Mm -hmm. not a trend, you'll be fine.
0: Nick, thank you so much. I really (laughs) appreciate it. This has been such a treat. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.